0: Uh, Russ sent me a message uh, listened, because he's stalking us. Uh, <laughs> listened to the wineskin message a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "Well, you clearly need to be preaching more." So, uh, so hold on tight for 30 minutes of heresy and boredom. This is going to be <laughs> the worst message you've ever heard. <laughs> Never mind following Steve Barr from last week. Um, wasn't that just outstanding? Um, I remember as Steve said at the time we we'll probably won't remember what he preached but we'll remember that illustration perhaps for the rest of our lives. Um, such an incredible reminder that everyone who enters the kingdom is a person. Uh, do you understand what I mean by that? We, we lose connection with that sometime and those people are connected to other people and uh, there's a profound impact when you know, sometimes one person comes into the kingdom and their family comes into the kingdom and their friends come into the kingdom. So yeah, linking that back to Alpha Just think about the impact that 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 one person that we're praying for, that that could have. Um, I was reminded again uh, that we just need to be obedient and responsive to the Holy Spirit um, when we're around people. Um, Because Jesus' capacity to love people and draw people is so far beyond our own. And uh, he's just relentlessly pursuing everyone. But today, we're going to talk about worship. Pet subject surprise surprise Uh, and that is uh, worship in the context of our meeting together here on a a Sunday morning Uh, and it might seem strange but parts of what I'm going to talk about will tie in with uh, uh, bits of what Steve was talking about last week. Um, Worship is a key uh, in establishing our love for those who are yet to enter the kingdom and our motivation to therefore go those things are connected So we're going to go fast today, uh, because this was going to be two preachers, so I'm not going to waste any words, and we've got a lot to get through. So hold on tight. Um, I want to unpack worship under two uh, broad categories. Can we... It's driving me mad, it's driving everybody else mad. (laughs) Under two broad categories, and this is by no means uh, an exhaustive exploration of worship, but I feel these points are what God has for us today. So uh, the first part's going to be, why do we worship? Why worship? Why come together and sing? Why is it important? And then we're going to talk about practically about how we worship. How does it work? And, and what pattern has, uh, has God laid out for us in that? So firstly, why? Why do we come together and sing? Why is it so important? Or perhaps you're just not the musical type and sometimes you think to yourself, why do we have to do this? I don't like music. Will you please turn it down? Can't we just get on with the good stuff? Stop all this emotional carry-on and just open the Word. Let's read some Scripture. I um, won't get you to look them up; they'll come up on the screen. Psalm ninety-five, one: "O come, let us sing to the Lord; let us shout joyfully to the Rock of our salvation." Psalm one hundred and fifty, verse one: "Praise the Lord! Praise God in His sanctuary! Praise Him in His mighty firmament." Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and the dance barb. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with electric guitars and drum kits. Um, (laughs) Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. There you go. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Psalm 100 verse 2 Sing to serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. Ephesians 5.15 See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand that what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms or songs, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's more. James 5.13 Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 2.12 Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So that's just a few. I had a quick Google. Apparently... There are around 1,150 verses in the Bible that reference music and singing. (laughs) That's a lot. We could read them all. (laughs) So why sing? Well, clearly, as we've just read, because the Lord is into it. It's not just a nice thing that all the emotional, creative people do. It's actually a biblical command. It's not an optional extra or something we just have to get out of the way before we get to the real stuff. And it would seem also from these scriptures and many others that God designed us to respond to him with singing. We're told in Zephaniah that actually God himself sings over us. So obviously creativity, music and singing together is something that God is really into. It has been given to us both as a biblical mandate, but more so, and this is important, more so as an incredible gift To express our worship to Jesus in a way that connects so much more deeply than just our spoken words. So, on that thought, and don't think about this too hard, Um, this is the sort of things I lie awake staring at the ceiling thinking about. Um, But has it occurred to you that music is pretty weird at face value? It's kind of odd. Um, sound, like noises, the things we hear is just air moving back and forth at a given rate and it's in such a way that our ears receive that and turn that into impulses, in our electrical impulses that our brain can interpret. So sound in certain combinations evoke a response like fingernails on a chalkboard or a polystyrene packaging cape. <laughs> but some sounds put together in particularly creative ways take those interpretations in our brains and they connect them with our God-given emotions and they make us feel and express things. So we've got a choice. We could see music and singing as something that the musical misty-eyed emotional creatives love (laughs) or we could see it as part of how we were designed by our almighty creator. We could see it as a gift. We're wired up to feel and connect with things that we hear and music to, is given to us as this extraordinary gift to express our worship to Jesus. We have a different reaction to a major chord than we do a minor chord. Um, I was going to play one, but we won't for the sake of time. Um, but you can, uh, do you know what I mean by a major chord and a minor chord? You can play both of these chords to a child who knows logically nothing about music. And they'll immediately be able to tell you that one of them is happy and one of them is sad. <laughs> That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. So in being created in the image of God, that creativity and response is hardwired into us. It's not something we need to shut down. It's part of God's design. And it must be part of God's makeup too. Or perhaps that's just how we evolved. That's how we crawled out of the slime. (laughs) Or maybe an incredibly creative God created us in his image as creative beings. And he joined those dots for us to give us this gift to respond to Jesus and all that he is. So why worship point one? Because we're commanded to, we're created with it in us, and because God gave us the gift of music to reflect the awesomeness of Jesus back to him. Okay, that's three points. Why worship point two? Because it focuses us on Jesus and not ourselves. When we come together in Jesus-centred worship, we are joining in with the anthem of the kingdom that is happening all the time. We become aware of his presence and what he is doing and suddenly the stuff of our week seems small and insignificant. Every picture of God's throne in the Bible describes both his glory and the presence of angelic beings lifting up praise and worship and seeking to draw all the earth to join them. So just one of them. Uh, Let's read from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So suddenly, when we're aware of this picture and the reality going on right now, the argument that we had with our spouse on the way to church about what we're going to have for lunch seems less important. But it's not just the trivial stuff either. Maybe that's not trivial. <laughs> lunch is important. Um, joining in the chorus of the angels brings, us, brings the life and power of God into everything and anything that we're facing. We become aware of how, and how, of how powerful and massive God is In the midst of facing bankruptcy, or our illness that has a a terminal diagnosis. Our loneliness or heartache seems smaller when we're welcomed into his presence, where this kind of extravagant worship is going on all the time. (laughs) So we're going to go fast. Why worship point three? Because when we sing, we are open to what he wants to say and prepared for the teaching of the word. So Colossians 3.16 which we read earlier tells us that Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now notice that this scripture is one sentence and this only just occurred to me. Our singing is more than a warm-up for the sermon or a filler in the service. This scripture is clearly laying out for us that singing stands alongside preaching as one of the great two ways that God has ordained for his word to dwell richly in each one of us. So connecting this thought with the creativity that we spoke about earlier, the songs we sing in worship can be like bite-sized take-home theology. Because of the emotional connection through music, combined with the songs we sing, we have this mental shortcut that easily commits Um, the Word of God to memory. It's like a redeemed earworm. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) We all talk about how we get songs stuck in our heads, right? How good is it when these songs are chunks of Scripture and biblical truth just resonating? I think that what the Scripture is saying to us is that the Word of Christ can dwell in us richly through the songs we get stuck in our heads or other things. (laughs) It's also why we need to be really careful about the songs that we sing, what we choose to sing. And we're careful about that here. If we're going to get it stuck in our heads, we better make sure that it isn't heretical rubbish. We better make sure it's actually true. (laughs) And that they're about Jesus and not about ourselves. And more on that later. Um, And this is where we we tie in um, with... uh, uh, a heart for the lost. Why worship point four? Because everything else flows out of worship. I just have to have a drink because I'm like an old car. <clears throat> so looking back at Steve's message from last week, um, I've been reading some of Jack Hayford's stuff. He uh, has a church in the States, church on the way, amazing journey. And, uh, and can I put to you this, that evangelism begins with worship. Now before you all throw things at me, shouting we need to stop all this emotional singing and stuff and get out there and chase down the lost, just hear me out. Um, We seem to find this pattern in the New Testament that Hayford puts it to us, that the priesthood of all believers, all of us, that there's a biblical order of things and it's as follows. So first comes ministry to the Lord, our first priority is ministry to the Lord and that's worship. Then there's ministry to the saints, which is fellowship, that's all of us together, loving one another with his with his love and then out of that flows ministry to the lost which is evangelism so to quickly paraphrase what he is saying because of all the reasons above pure worship leads us to know and to love Jesus more because of this we have the capacity to love and serve each other and because of these two facts evangelism becomes a natural byproduct of the life of God flowing from a healthy body nourished through worship and fellowship gone quiet With this order in mind then, our motivation for evangelism comes from a foundation of love. We naturally want the lost to enjoy what we enjoy. We want them to come into a life with Jesus in a kingdom community because we love them and don't want them to miss out. Our hearts for the lost come from our love for Jesus and his love for us because we are constantly encountering him through worship. We see lost people as people Jesus loves not as statistics or scalps or a program or an obligation we have to fill out of guilt. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we see everyone, not just the people we like, everyone, how Jesus sees them. We're motivated by his perfect love for people, not our very imperfect love. The desire to therefore go is empowered by Jesus' pursuit of people, not by our own guilt or duty. But wait a minute, surely all sacrifice is for the evangelism of the world. All surrender is for the salvation of souls. All ministry must be to reach the lost. All effort and planning and programs must be to get people saved. Surely that's how it is. So I understand if this raises an eyebrow, but it could be that evangelism could become an idol ...that distracts us from our first sacrifice, which is to worship the King of Kings. Our first work must be to humble ourselves in His presence. Then we are motivated not by might, nor by power, but by His Spirit. We go out not in our own effort, but full of His love, His power, and His presence. And we don't have to look very far through the book of Acts to find evidence of this. At Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved... The day began with a prayer meeting followed by the Spirit's power into a worship service. Supernaturally inspired, worship drew the crowd, got their attention and created the foundation for the preaching of the gospel. After that, the people were daily in the temple courts praising and worshipping God. They enjoyed such favour among all the people that souls were being added to the church every day. The miracle at the beautiful gate happened as Peter and John were on their way to worship. The man's healing, Peter's sermon to the crowd were just byproducts. They had come to worship. And then perhaps most significantly, in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas into missionary evangelism in the midst of a worship service. From here, the gospel broke through the entire Roman world and actually set the course of history as we know it. All going back to a worship service in Antioch around 1900 years ago. And here's the quickest point. Why worship point five? And perhaps most importantly, because Jesus is awesome. <laughs> and he deserves all of us. Everything we have. Which leads us into sermon part B. Take a deep breath. Have a stretch. We're going to talk about how we worship, the practicalities of that. So point one. So there, is, um, there seems to be an order or a biblical pattern for when we come together. You'll notice as a general rule that we kick off with a praise song or a fastie, I like to call them. <laughs> so Psalm 100 verse 4 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. So it's not a formula that church kind of rolls something like this. We start with a couple of fasties, then we do a couple of slowies. There may be some ministry and manifestations of the Spirit happen, and then the Word is preached, and then perhaps there's a response. It's actually a biblical pattern given to us. It's not a formula, because God knows us better than we know ourselves, and He knows best how to get His kingdom into us. So from that standpoint, we enter His courts with thanksgiving and praise, or we get our eyes off ourselves and the argument we had in the car on the way here, and we be thankful. We become thankful and we turn our hearts towards Him. The fasties, they get our attention and they remind us of who God is. Told you there'd be some heresy. <laughs> From there, we are ready to join the chorus of the angels around the throne and enter, into deep, enter deep into his presence and the purity of Christ-centered worship. And then because we're in, this, in that place, we are finally tuned in and aware of what he is saying to us and to the body. So the manifestations of the Holy Spirit begin to flow. From there, we're ready to receive the truth of the Word preached and revealed by the Spirit because we're in His presence and we're listening. Now, notice that nothing about this order or pattern of things has anything to do with convincing God what He should or shouldn't do, convincing Him to do anything a certain way. It's all about God knowing how to lead us into what He is already doing. It isn't about a formula that convinces the Holy Spirit to come out of the corner and play, like some kind of shy puppy. It's not about us creating an atmosphere for God to move, actually. It's about God creating an atmosphere and heart attitude that moves us to where and changes us into who he wants us to be. We're going to move on quickly. Um, How, point two. Come expectant. Actually believe that God wants to move among his people, because he does. Turn up believing that God wants to minister. Pray. Pray. Ask him what he wants to do and what he is saying. Does he want to get something through you today? Be prepared to enter into his throne room. And this is for me. Get up, cheer up, and have a good breakfast. <laughs> Come ready. PowerPoint point three. Be a participant, not a spectator. Or, uh, I love this illustration, be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Set the temperature. Don't just respond to the environment. Now worship looks like something, okay? We have a choice to engage uh, that we have to make. And there are a couple of Greek and Hebrew words which explain some of the outward expressions that we see. And just to demonstrate that these expressions are ones that we didn't just make up. Uh, there's a word, uh, yadah, which is commonly translated to praise in English, which literally means, literally, to throw out your hands. So there's a couple of scriptures. Give thanks, Yadah, to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, that men would praise Yadah, the Lord, for his goodness and of his wonderful works to the children of men. So where else do we see people throw their hands up? Concerts? The footy? Surprise parties? (laughs) Why do we do that? Because it's the way we're made. That God has made us with these inbuilt mechanisms in us, or reflexes almost, to praise Him. Uh, one of the most commonly used words for worship in the Bible is the Greek word proskuneo, which literally means to prostrate oneself I said that right? To kiss the hand towards, to throw oneself flat on the ground in in rever- I didn't say that right, in <laughs> reverence and awe, or to get on our face before the king of Kings. So when the Bible is talking to us and speaking to us about praise and worship, it is calling us to some very obvious outward expressions. People have said before, um, probably in an attempt to shut worship down, that these physical expressions are carnal or it's all just hype. It's all crazy Pentecostals swinging from the chandeliers. That's not so. It's actually the way we're made. So key in all of this, though, is that um, corporate worship, all of us together, is one of the ministries of all the saints. That's all of us. Worship isn't something that we come to church to observe or to witness. It's something that we actively engage in. Think of it like a team sport, not a spectator sport. It's like um, basketball, not golf. (laughs) Nothing wrong with golf, but you play it by yourself, right? (laughs) (laughs) as saints worship is something we'll all be doing together for all of eternity as a priesthood then when we come together for corporate worship we are all adding our voices and praise together joining with the angels around the throne and we all get to take part what incredible privilege psalm 1 reminds us that god inhabits the praises of his people We come together to praise. The Holy Spirit is present with us because we are joining with him doing his most favourite thing ever. The Spirit comes to glorify Jesus. Corporate worship is one of the most important ministries of the saints and it is also the one we'll be doing for eternity. So best get used to the idea now. All right. how, point four. How to worship for... And here is the most important point, point. and if you forget everything else I've said today, I don't care, as long as you remember this, which is why I've saved it for the end. Our worship is for Jesus. Our songs need to be focused on Jesus. Everything else we've talked about is a byproduct of focusing on Jesus. We need to sing about the King of Kings. We need to not sing about our struggles. Be patient with me here. There is a difference between personal and corporate worship. For this reason, as I said before, we're really careful about our song choices here. If you've been to uh, any of our prayer meetings, you've probably heard us talk about the difference between relationship and rulership prayer. And I put to you that the same thing applies in our worship. Can I suggest that not every worship song that is written is best used when we all come together? The route to magnifying and worshipping Jesus is to magnify and worship Jesus. We don't make Jesus any bigger or more magnificent by singing about how terrible and worm-like we are. When we're together, we don't need to sing about our circumstances or the things that we are facing no matter how good or bad they may be because Jesus is aware of all of our circumstances and he wants to pour his life into every last one of them. Now, I'm not going to make an example of specific songs or I'll get into trouble again. Um, But the problem with singing songs that follow the everything is terrible but you are great lyric is that when we come together, not everything is terrible for everyone. For some people it is at the time. But for the majority that aren't facing terrible things, they're left wondering why everything is so terrible. And if we go too far down that path, they all start looking and trying to find some terrible things in their lives so that they can connect. Now, hear this. If you generally are having a very bad case of the terribles at the time, then you'll probably find deep ministry in those songs. But what about everybody else? What about the rest of the room? I've seen this go a step further before as well. Sometimes I've seen worship leaders get up in front of everyone and talk about the terrible time they're having and sing a song about the terribles in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Play, play the country in Western, backwards. <laughs> uh, but what is happening here uh, is that they are having their own personal worship and ministry time specific to their current situation in front of everyone else while everybody else observes. Now, I'm not saying that these songs are bad, not at all. They're just for a different time and for a different place, different purpose. I've had some terrible times, I'm sure we all have. And in those times, the truths in those songs have really ministered to me deeply and lifted me out. But they've ministered to me in my lounge room or in my car or in my headphones. When we come together as all the saints with all of our stuff, good and bad, The shortest route to joy in victory in all of it is to just lift up Jesus. Sing to him, not just about him. Do you know what I mean by that? When we do this, he'll fill us with his life and presence, no matter what our current reality is. I said I was going to finish with that, but I'm going to finish with this. What is our image of Jesus when we come to worship? What is your image of Jesus? How do we see him and relate to him? How we see him and relate to him will have a profound and defining effect on how we worship him. So how do you see Jesus? Perhaps he's like your mate Greg, who you bump into at the pub every now and again, and you really like Greg, and Greg's everybody's mate. Never met a Greg I didn't like. He's a really decent guy who did some great stuff. He's a great bloke. Or perhaps he's the, uh, the away in a manger Jesus, the peaceful baby in a manger who came at Christmas and he never cries. Huh. Or the Casper Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. He's the friendly, peaceful guy who means no harm wafting around, wearing a white sheet, riding on a donkey. (laughs) He's going around being nice and he's doing good things. Or maybe he's the Jesus suffering and crucified, beaten and broken for us, sacrificed on the cross at Calvary, his mercy and blood poured out for us, and this is true. Or the Jesus who defeated death and walked out of the tomb, who appeared to his mates and his disciples. This is also true. Can I suggest that those images of Jesus are not where it ends? How about the right here, right now, Jesus? Let's flick over to Revelation 1. (coughs) Dangerous to read anything out of Revelation when you're speaking. (laughs) Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, Clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His hair and head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So for a bit of context in this situation, before his ascension, John and Jesus were really close. He described himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, which is pretty keen. (laughs) John was the guy resting his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. And now when John is reunited with Jesus in this revelation, it's not all hugs and fist bumps. He sees Jesus in all of his resurrected ascended glory and he fell at his feet as though dead. He thought he was going to die. Now when Paul encountered the right here, right now Jesus, this Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was literally blinded by his glory and totally transformed and changed in every way in a moment. This is a powerful Jesus who has overcome all and rules over all. He's actually indescribable. Words fail to describe him. This scripture uses words, phrases like um, his head and hair were white like wool, his eyes like a flame of fire. Using the word "like" because there literally isn't language to describe what John saw. They use words something like because he is now so far beyond words to describe. He's so indescribable and so far from our ability to compute that our only response should we actually see him face to face is to fall at his feet as though dead. This is the Jesus we worship. This revelation of him demands a response from us. And this Jesus is at work in and through us. And this Jesus is building his church. Your revelation of Jesus has such a profound impact on the way that we worship and the way that we live. Amen.